0: If you would please open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 5. I promised you last week we were going to finish the chapter, and that's what, Lord willing, we're going to do this morning. I'm so glad that the Bible says His strength is made perfect in our weakness, because I'm feeling mighty weak today, but I hope His strength will be able to come through. Our wonderful, holy, unique, eternal God created all things and all creatures for His own what? His own pleasure, exactly. Revelation 4:11. for his own benefit, for his own purpose, and yes, for his own glory, in accordance with his own will. So he has the absolute right, then, to rule his creation, to rule over it. And that right includes the right to use his power... To crush those enemies who oppose him and challenge his right to rule as sovereign. Now, we learned in our previous lesson that God gave mankind in Adam the tenant possession of earth. God's intention was that man would function as his representative and that man would administer God's rule over the earth in obedience to God's commandments and in obedience to his will. This was what we would call a theocracy. God was sovereign, God was king, and man was to be his faithful and his obedient servant. However, we all know too well that man in Adam forfeited his tenant possession of the earth by following God's primary enemy, Satan, in his rebellion against God. So the theocracy ended... And actually, the world ever since has been under what we could call a Satanocracy, Satan ruling. Satan usurped the tenant possession of the world, and he has continued to rule this world system as the god of this world ever since that fateful day of man's fall in the garden. Now, if you did miss last week's lesson, I would strongly recommend that you get the cassette tape, or the notes, because it was an extremely important lesson in order to understand the whole rest of the book of Revelation. The good news is that God purposed to restore his theocracy to earth immediately, well, actually in his predeterminative uh, plan from the beginning of time, but he purposed to restore his theocracy, which would require the redemption of man's forfeited tenant possession now in order to accomplish this god sent into the world his only begotten son the lord jesus christ and he sent him into the world as a man so that he could redeem mankind's inheritance of the earth as man's kinsman remember he had to be of the same tribe he had to be a man in order to be a kinsman. And the Lord Jesus paid the redemption price, both for mankind's redemption, which is what we call salvation, and for man's inheritance, for the earth itself, for all creation, to be redeemed. And what was that price that he paid? Right, the shedding of his own precious, sinless blood and the giving of his own life. So Christ... Fulfilled the first responsibility of the kinsman redeemer, which was the responsibility of paying the redemption price. When he paid the redemption price, a deed of purchase was prepared in the form of a scroll. I don't have my little scroll this week, but you know what it looks like by now. And that scroll was sealed how many times? Seven times to guard against any change. And it was placed in a secure Location. Where was that location? The right hand of God the Father. And you can't get any more secure than that. But the Lord Jesus did not take tenant possession of the earth immediately after he paid its redemption price, right? Because of circumstances, those circumstances being that the world rejected him as her kinsman redeemer. Primarily, Israel did not believe on him. And so he ascended into heaven. Where he has remained ever since. In his time of absence, Satan and his demonic and human forces have continued to exercise their usurped tenant possession over the earth. However, as we will read in this lesson this morning, seven years prior to the Lord's second coming... The Lord Jesus will take that sealed scroll, that seven-sealed scroll, from his Father's right hand. That's what we'll read about today in verse 7. And he will do this in preparation for the fulfillment of the second responsibility of the kinsman redeemer. And that second responsibility is the eviction of Satan and all of his entire world system from this planet, from earth. And then Christ himself will take tenant possession of the earth. Now, of course, Satan and his forces are going to challenge the Lord's right to take tenant possession of earth from them. In fact, Satan will attempt to do everything possible in his power to prevent Christ from taking Um, tenant possession of earth in order to then give irrefutable evidence of his right to take this earth from satan the usurper christ is going to take the scroll he's going to break open its seals one at a time and then he's going to read it publicly. We'll talk about when he'll do that in a minute. But as he breaks each one of those seven seals, he will initiate an unprecedented seven-year bombardment of his divine wrath and judgment against Satan's domain. And this is all going to be done in preparation for his coming invasion to evict the enemy, all of his enemies. That seven-year bombardment is what is described for us in chapter 6 all the way to chapter 18 of the book of Revelation. Through those judgments, Christ is going to prove that he has both the power and the authority to fulfill the second responsibility of the kinsman redeemer. Remember the two responsibilities of the kinsman redeemer? I think, wasn't that one of your homework questions? That he had to have the price and he had to have the power. Right? Price and power. Then on the very day of his second coming when the Lord Jesus will return from heaven to earth to confront Satan and all of his assembled forces who by this time will have gathered together. Satan will make sure that they are all gathered together in Israel. Why Israel? Because Satan has read the book just like I hope you have, and he knows where the Lord's going to return will be to Israel. So he'll have all of his forces gathered there to attempt to prevent Christ from taking possession of the earth. Now men don't know that. They're just following their own sinful instincts. They don't know the big picture. They don't know what's going on. Satan knows exactly what he's doing. And it will be then at this time that the Lord will read. Look at Revelation 5, 4. It says that he will read the book. It will be at this time, the time of his second coming, that he will open up that well, of course, he'll be opening it up during the seven years of tribulation. But when at his second coming, he will read the scroll deed of purchase publicly before all of his enemies. And I think this is possibly what is meant in Revelation 19.15. Revelation 19 is the... Uh, record of the Lord's second coming when He comes, and in verse 15 of that chapter it says, "And out of His mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it He should smite the nations, and He shall rule them with a rod of iron." Very possibly, you know, we know that the the sword that comes out of His mouth is the Word of God. Very possibly, this will be the public reading of that title. Indeed, to the earth, where he will, that is the irrefutable evidence that he is indeed the kinsman redeemer and has the right to take back tenant possession of the earth from the usurper, from Satan. This will prove that he has the right to evict his enemies of that which is rightfully his. So he will then proceed to do just that. He will evict Satan and all of his forces from the earth. And then the Lord Jesus will take tenant possession of the earth and together with redeemed mankind, you know, those who are joint heirs with him because of their faith in him, he will rule the earth as the last Adam He's the second Adam, the last Adam, God's representative, and he will rule this earth, this present earth, for 1,000 years in absolute righteous accordance with God's perfect will. God then will have fulfilled his purpose of restoring the theocracy to the earth through the kinsman, redeemer, his own son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's how the story will end. It's a good, happy ending, isn't it? if you're on the Lord's side, and I hope you are, because it's a winning side. We all want to be winners, don't we? That's how the story will end. But let's now go back to where John was in chapter 5 of Revelation. You know, John didn't have this complete big picture. Understandably, if you could put yourself in John's sandals, you could understand how he would be rather caught up in all the drama of um, all that his... Yet mortal eyes were uh, beholding. His focus, as we learned in our previous lesson, had gone from the throne in heaven, that was the focus of chapter 4, to the scroll in God's right hand, the focus of chapter 5. So now, with our focus of attention drawn upon that significant scroll we're going to turn now to considering the rest of this chapter this critical chapter and look we'll look of course at all the events which transpired in this chapter through the eyes and through the emotions of the Apostle John as we continue our outline we've already discussed the first part the scroll it's all we covered last week as we looked at verse 1 This morning, consecutively, we're going to look at the search, the sorrow, the slain lamb, the song of redemption, and then the sevenfold praise. So let's begin by looking at the search in verses 2 and 3. But I'm going to read verse 1 just to bring us up to where we are. Starting with Revelation 5, verse 1, John says, And I saw in the right hand of him that sat on the throne a book, or a scroll, written within and on the back side, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals thereof? And no man in heaven nor in earth, neither under the earth, was able to open the book, neither to look thereon. As John was focused on the seven-sealed book, or scroll, in God's right hand, he then saw a, a strong angel, we're told. And this strong angel was proclaiming with a loud voice a very profound question. His question was, who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals thereof? Now, because this is such an important question, it was not just an ordinary angel who proclaimed it, if there is such a thing as an ordinary angel. This angel was a strong angel, and the Greek word used for strong means that he was a powerful, he was a mighty angel. And furthermore, he proclaimed the question, He didn't just say it, and he did so with what kind of a voice? The kind of voice I don't have today? He did it with a loud voice, and that signifies urgency and intense concern. All of this put together indicates to us that the answer to his question is of utmost importance. Now, who this angel is, we don't know for sure. The scripture doesn't tell us. Many Bible teachers have speculated that it's the angel Gabriel, the same one who ordered the closing and the sealing of Daniel, the book of Daniel, in Daniel 12.4. But we don't know for sure. It is important that this strong angel, whoever he is, is... Uh, loudly ask this question so as to have the question, to have the, the matter established before all of heaven's residents, and before John, and because it's before John, before all of those who would read John's account of all of this, to have it established so, um, so that mankind would understand the importance of needing one qualified to be kinsman redeemer. He needed to ask this question so everyone would understand that without one who was worthy, who is worthy to be man's kinsman redeemer, man and earth would be forever doomed to remain under the domain of Satan. So this is a a very critical question. Without one worthy to take that book and to unloosen its seals, you know, the title deed to the earth, God's plan for returning earth to a theocracy would remain unfulfilled. And Satan would have victory over God. That would be tragic. That would be horrendous for all of us. So the strong angel's question is no ordinary question. It is the greatest question of all time and eternity. Who is worthy? Who is worthy to redeem man and earth from Satan? Is there anyone worthy to do this? Or are man and earth doomed to eventual self-destruction of? under the reign of the evil one. So the search begins. All heaven began to look for a man who could serve as the rightful heir of earth. Remember, the kinsman redeemer of mankind and earth had to be a man. So twice in these verses, um, it says man. I think it's in 3 and 4. I didn't read verse 4, but twice we have the fact that they are looking for a man. It has to be a man. He could not be any other kind of created being. So they're not up there looking for an angel. They're not up there looking for any kind of other living creature. Tenant possession could not be passed from one tribe to another. So it had to be a man. It was man's lost estate that must be reclaimed. It was because of man's sin that the world was lost in the first place. And no man who is or who was a sinner can ever take it back again. The price of redemption could only be paid by a life of perfect sinlessness. And that life had to be offered through, as we said before, the shedding of blood in a substitutionary death for the world of sinners because it tells us in Hebrews 9.22 without the shedding of blood there is no but there is no remission in all the world's long history there have been many many men who would have been willing to take the scroll and to rule the world men such as Nebuchadnezzar King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon men such as Alexander the Great Great He would have been willing to take that title deed to the earth. He would have loved to have had it. Men such as Genghis Khan and Bonaparte Napoleon and Adolf Hitler. But the strong angel's question was not who is willing. Right. The question was who is worthy, and there is all the world of difference. Romans 3.10 tells us that there is none righteous, no, not one. All of the ranks of both the living and the dead, those in heaven and those still in earth, and even those under the earth in hell, are looked over. In this search, everyone is looked over. All mankind is looked over until the whole universe is searched. But not a single worthy man is found. Not Abraham, not Isaac, not Jacob, not Joseph, not Enoch, not Elijah, not King David, not Paul, not Peter, and not John, who's watching all of this. Not one anywhere is worthy to step forward and to claim the right to that scroll, to the title deed to the earth. In fact, John made a point of telling us, I believe it's at the end of verse um, 3, yeah, at the end of verse 3, that not one was even found who was worthy to look upon the scroll. Although heaven will be full of those who were saved, because heaven will be full of all the souls. Of the Old Testament saints and all of the resurrected church saints, you know, they'll have there by this point in time, body and soul. Heaven will be full of all the redeemed, all those who have been made like Christ. Yet they are not worthy, are they? You see, it was by Christ's grace and not by any merit of redeemed man that they were saved. So the one who is worthy to take and open the scroll must do so by his own demonstrated merit and not by imputed merit, which is what all redeemed men have. We don't have any merit of our own. Our merit and our righteousness has been imputed to us by Christ. Therefore, all of mankind stood mute the challenge to take the scroll from the right hand of God. Now the purpose of this dramatic search was to impress upon John and through him to impress upon all future readers of the book of Revelation the extreme importance and the significance of the scroll document. And the one who alone in all of the universe is worthy to take it as rightful kinsman redeemer. So the purpose of this question is not because nobody up there knew who was worthy. It was to stress to us the importance of this moment. The importance of the scroll and the importance of the one who is worthy. You see, as of yet, John had not seen or recognized the one whom he had known so well on earth you know when the Lord was in his earthly body and John knew him extremely well probably more intimately than any other man so thinking that this universal search had been in vain and fearing all that this would mean what did John do he wept and so we're moving now into verse 4 as we look at the sorrow it says and I wept much, because no man was found worthy to open and to read the book, neither to look thereon. Actually, twice he says no man was even worthy to look at it, right? End of verse 3 and end of verse 4. John here seemingly understood the importance of the moment, as well as the importance of the contents of that scroll. Because when no man anywhere was found worthy from all of the sons of Adam's ruined race to take up the challenge, not one man was able to take up the challenge of the throne by taking that title deed to planet Earth and opening its seals in order to execute judgment upon the wicked usurpers of the Earth, John's heart literally broke with sadness. There he was. I mean, just imagine where he is. He's not down here on Patmos. His body might have been, but in spirit. He was there. Where was he? He was surrounded by scenes of of grandeur and splendor like we can't even begin to imagine. You know, when we discussed the beginning of of chapter 4, we talked about all the wonder of what was before his eyes, things that defy human description. And yet, what is he doing? There he is in front of heaven's throne, and he's in tears serious tears. The Greek emphasizes that he was weeping for all he was worth. You know, some people think that when we get to heaven we are not going to cry anymore. That isn't true. Because God does not wipe away all tears until the new heaven and the new earth. And that doesn't come until after this earth. After the millennial kingdom, actually. There are going to be tears when we see people who don't believe in Christ. There are going to be tears when we see Satan gather all those people at the end of the millennial kingdom who inwardly were rebelling against Christ in a perfect environment, and yet many collect together to fight against him again after 1,000 years of perfect reign. There are going to be tears then. There are going to be tears when we stand at the great white throne, judge not we as redeemed. We won't be there, but we may see what's going on as people are cast into the lake of fire eternally the tears are not wiped away until the new heaven and the new earth you can read it revelation 21 4 that's when all tears are wiped away here we have john in heaven and he's crying so john understood how tremendously important it was for someone to come and to take earth from satan he knew how right and how just it was for the wicked and the ungodly of this earth to be judged for their sin of rebellion against God. And he wept at the thought of things on earth continuing forever and ever in the hands of Satan and his forces. I mean, that would be something horrendous to think about. That things would forever wax worse and worse and worse. The only way that we keep on going sometimes is because we know how the story ends, right? We know that eventually Satan will be kicked out and sin will be no more allowed, at least, um, overtly here on planet earth and John wept at the thought of the unrighteous and the, and, the, and the wickedness going on indefinitely without ever reaping the consequences of their rebellion against their creator and you know we should also weep shouldn't we even from heaven itself we would weep if we thought that Satan would forever be victorious over God in having stolen the earth from him and the souls of men because the earth belongs to who the earth is the Lord's and all the fullness thereof so we would weep if we thought that earth would permanently have been stolen from the Lord yet of course God is infinitely so much more wise and so much more powerful than satan who is merely a created being satan is only a created angel that God himself created, and God is so much wiser and so much more powerful than him that this would never, ever, ever be the case. Satan only now rules this planet by way of God's permissive will. He has already... Good news, been defeated, hasn't he? He is a defeated foe. He's already been sentenced. And all that awaits is the arrival of the one who defeated him, the kinsman redeemer who will throw him off of his temporary throne over earth and execute his sentence. Up to this point, however, this one, this kinsman redeemer, had not been seen by John. But one of the four and twenty elders was given the privilege of pointing him out to John, to broken-hearted John. Who is this one? He is the slain lamb. Let's look at the slain lamb, verses 5 to 7. It says, And one of the elders saith unto me, Weep not. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah... The root of David hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne and of the four beasts, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him, that sat upon the throne. I love that verse. And I'm so glad I'm going to be there to see that moment in time. You know, if the rapture didn't come until after the tribulation, we would miss that wonderful moment in time. And I don't think God's going to prevent us from seeing that. That's another reason for pre-tribulation rapture. It's very interesting, and I believe significant, that the one who tells John to weep not... Because someone has been found who has prevailed to open the book is not a strong angel. Could have been, but it's not. Rather, the bearer, the one who's bearing this great news, is one of the four and twenty elders. And I believe... Personally, that this gives additional support to the view which interprets the 24 elders as representatives of the church, or at least the view that says that these are men and not angels. Why do I say that? Well, because only one who represents redeemed man would really, you know, experientially understand what redemption is all about. Angels, we talked about this before, angels don't get redeemed. Men get redeemed. What was the question that the strong angel asked? He asked, who is worthy? But it was an elder who said, in essence, I know someone who is worthy. So I believe definitely that the elders represent men and not angels. And, of course, you know, I do believe they represent the church saints. Well, in verses 5 and 6, there are three unique titles given to the Lord Jesus in describing uh, who is worthy. We know it's the Lord Jesus, all right? You, You know that by now. He is the one who is worthy. He's referred to as the Lion of the tribe of Judah, first of all. Secondly, he's referred to as the Root of David. And thirdly, as a standing, slain lamb. So I want to consider the significance of each one of these unique titles. First of all, the Elder referred to the Worthy One as the Lion of the tribe of Judah. Now, to understand that title, it's necessary for us as is so true with much of what we find in the book of Revelation, for us to go back to the first book of the Bible, which is the book of Genesis. In Genesis chapter 49, we find a very very important prophetic record that has a great deal of detail in it regarding Israel and her future. One day it would be nice if we'd have time to study this very significant prophecy in Genesis 49. This prophecy was given by Jacob as blessings upon his 12 sons. Now as Jacob laid there upon his deathbed, each one of his 12 sons from the eldest, from Reuben down to the youngest, Benjamin, stepped forward in order to receive his final blessing from his dying father. Well, in verses 8 and 9, it was Judah's turn to go forward. And to Judah, Jacob said, Judah, thou art he whom thy brethren shall praise. Thy hand shall be in the neck of thine enemies. Thy father's children shall bow down before thee. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, thou art gone up. He stooped down, he couched as a lion, and as an old lion, who shall rouse him up? Now, I know all that sounds very confusing. What he really is saying here, this verse is is speaking of the gradual growth in power of the tribe of Judah. And it's using the imagery of the growth of a lion from a young lion, to a middle-aged lion, to an old lion. And then in verse 10, Jacob said these words. He said, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until who comes? Until Shiloh come, and unto him shall the gathering of the people be. Now, I don't have time to fully explain that prophecy. There's a lot of wonderful truth in it, a lot of... uh, Prophecy in it that has already been fulfilled exactly, you know, precisely as it was predicted. But to just tell you in a nutshell what it was saying here, it is a prediction that the Messiah will come from the tribe of Judah. Now, as we re- read about the 12 tribes of Israel uh, marching through the wilderness, the lead tribe is always the tribe of Judah. And the symbol on Judah's banner, you know, they each had a banner a flag the symbol was that of a lion Israel's leaders the leaders of the nation of Israel were to always be from the tribe of Judah if you read the book of Judges the very first judge of Israel was Othniel and he came from the tribe of what Judah the first God appointed king God appointed king of Israel was who Huh? Say somebody. Right, David, the first God-appointed king was David. Saul, King Saul, was used of God to discipline Israel because Israel had asked for a king. You know, and she wasn't content with God himself being her sovereign king. He was only to be her th- king. But she looked around at the other nations and said, oh, well, they have a king, we want a king too. So God used Saul to discipline her. But guess what? Saul was not from the tribe of Judah. He was from the tribe of Benjamin. So he was the, from the wrong tribe to have been a leader of Israel. Later, after they had been chastised, God gave them his, his you know, ordained king. The right king, he gave them King David, David who was from the tribe of Judah. And it was with him, with David, that the scepter, the, you know the, the rod to rule the nation, was first divinely ordained. Now, it would be from David's line that Shiloh would come. Shiloh is a Hebrew word which means the peace bringer. The Israelites understood, because of this Genesis 49 prophecy, they understood that their Messiah, their king, their peace bringer, or another word for it, Shiloh is peacemaker, that he was to come from the tribe of Judah. They knew that. They recognized that. Isaiah, as a matter of fact, prophesied about this peace bringer, didn't he? When he wrote, Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father. What's the last one? The Prince of Peace. He will be the Peace Bringer. And the Peace Bringer became one of the messianic titles used. in the the Old Testament. The prophets of old understood that it would be through the tribe of Judah that someone would come as their rightful king and that in his role as king, he would also bring to the world what? Peace. And then one night, outside of a sleepy little town whose name means house of bread, Outside of Bethlehem, angels suddenly appeared to a handful of shepherds on a hillside to make this announcement. They said, For unto you is born this day in the city of David, from the tribe of Judah, a Savior which is Christ the Lord. And along with this announcement came the angelic cry, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth, what? Peace. Peace goodwill toward men when the shepherds found the baby wrapped in swaddling clothes lying in a manger I don't I had thought I had a picture of that I don't the one that they were looking upon that little baby in the manger was Shiloh he was the peace bringer he was the messiah and king he was the kinsman redeemer the one and the only one who could bring peace to earth Now, of course, we know that this peace bringer was rejected, not only as the fulfiller of the Genesis 49 prophecy, but he was rejected as the fulfiller of all the other messianic prophecies as well, even though he met every, every single credential. He fulfilled every messianic prophecy to the T. And yet he was rejected. And the consequence of that rejection was that peace did not come to earth at his first coming. Although he does bring spiritual peace to those who believe on him, doesn't he? A peace that passes all understanding, a peace that the world cannot understand. Now at his second coming, however, he will bring peace on earth when he establishes his kingdom. And it will be at that time that the last part of the Genesis forty nine ten prophecy will be fulfilled, where it says, And unto him shall the gathering of the people be, because at his second coming all nations across the world will come to worship him in Jerusalem as he reigns from David's throne. So then, who is he whom the elder pointed out? to john as the one in all the universe of men who is worthy to take the title deed to the earth who is he he is the lion of the tribe of judah he is the crucified resurrected ascended and glorified lord jesus christ he is god who became man through the tribal line of judah and through the the royal line the kingly line of david Now, the second title that the elder gave in regard to the one who was worthy to take the title deed and unloosen the seals is the title, The Root of David. Now, this is really a wonderful title for the Lord. It's the only time it's used in the New Testament here, The Root of David. This is a wonderful title because it speaks of Christ both as man, 100% man, and as deity, 100% God. As far as the Lord's humanity is concerned, he did have his roots in David. Isaiah 11.10 predicted the Messiah in these terms. It says, and there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse. Who was Jesse? David's father. Okay, so a rod will come out of the stem of Jesse and a branch shall grow out of his Roots. That's Isaiah eleven ten. By the way, the Lord Jesus, who is the branch. If you look that passage up, you'll notice that the word branch is in a has a capital B. The Lord Jesus is the branch. That's another name for him, the branch. He's the one spoken of in this prophecy. Do you know where the Lord Jesus grew up? He was born in the house of bread. He was born in Bethlehem because he is the bread of life. But where did he grow up? Nazareth. Do you know what Nazareth means? It means branch town, literally. The branch grew up in branch town. The identity of Christ as the root of David reinforces his right as heir of David's eternal throne because it was prophesied that Israel's king was to be of the house of David. Now, before the birth of Jesus, the angel had said, He shall be great, and he shall be called the Son of the Highest, and the Lord shall give unto him the throne of his father David, and he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. So you see, in his humanity, he is the root of David. He was from David's seed. Okay, He is the Son of David. However, as far as the Lord's deity is concerned, Christ is the root of David. The Lord created David, didn't he? As he created all of us, as he created all men. He's not only the offspring of David, he is David's creator he is david's lord and this was you know the seemingly unsolvable dilemma that christ presented to the pharisees we talked about this when we did our life of christ study in matthew chapter 22 verses 41 to 46 they were trying to trip him up and he came back and he gave them this whopper of a question he quoted from psalm 110 verse 1 where David had referred to the Messiah as his Lord. David called the Messiah his Lord. And Jesus asked the Pharisees how then David could call the Messiah his Lord when the Messiah was to be David's son. It was a seemingly unsolvable dilemma, unless you give the obvious answer. What's the obvious answer? It's because the Messiah would himself be the eternal Lord. He would be deity. But this answer, of course, the religious rulers refused to give. They, they knew what they needed to say, but they refused to give that answer because it would allow for Christ's claims to both messiahship and equality with God to be scriptural claims. So they kept silent, and they could not answer his question. So he is both human, he is the seed of David, and he is divine. He is the creator of David. He is David's Lord, the root of David. Now, before we get to the third title or the third description which the elder gave to John concerning the one who was worthy to take the scroll from God's right hand and open it, let's look at the rest of verse (coughs) 5. After commanding John not to weep and then to behold the one who is the lion of the tribe of Judah and the root of David, the elder gave John the reason why he didn't need to weep anymore. He said, it is this one to whom John was being directed who hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. Now, the Greek word used for prevailed is from the root, the same root word used that we read about many times in Revelation chapters 2 and 3, the word overcomer. Overcomer. Same root word, prevailed, or conqueror. Actually, in the Greek, if you were to read the Greek, The verb is placed before the two titles for Christ that we just looked at, the Lion of the Tribe of Judah and the Root of David. So literally it reads like this, Behold, prevailed the Lion of the Tribe of Judah and the Root of David. The verb comes first. Christ's victory is such that he has every right, not only to take the book from God's right hand, but he has every right to... Open, to unseal it and to open it and to read it. What is it that Christ prevailed over? What is it that he overcame? Same word. What is it that he conquered? Same word. Well, he conquered Satan at the cross because it was there that he bruised that old serpent's head. At his resurrection, he prevailed over, or he conquered, he destroyed what? Right, he destroyed the power of death, and he took the sting, he prevailed over the grave of the believer. Suppose then that when the Lord Jesus Christ stepped forward to take that scroll from God's right hand, let's say that God asked him, what the basis of his claim was to that title deed to the earth. He says, What you know, why do you have the right to claim this title deed, to take it out of my hand? What could the Lord Jesus answer? Well, he could answer first of all by saying the world is mine, I have a right to this title deed by way of creation. Because I made it. And secondly, he could say, the world is mine by right of Calvary because I redeemed it with my own blood and my own life. And thirdly, he could say, the earth is mine by right of conquest, because I have already prevailed, I have already uh, overcome its enemy, I have already bruised his head with a fatal blow, and by my mighty power, I am also ready to come to once and forever remove my enemies from the premises and conquer that which is rightfully mine as kinsman redeemer. So he could say to God the Father, it's, right, it's mine by right of creation, by right of calvary, and by right of conquest. Now the third title or description, we'll move to that, regarding the worthy one, the Lord Jesus Christ, is found in verse 6. And this time, the description comes from John himself. It doesn't come from the elder, it comes from John. John did exactly what the elder told him to do. What did the elder told, tell him to do? He said, look, you know, behold. So John turned and he beheld. He says to us, and I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne and of the four beasts stood a lamb as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. Where is the worthy one who alone in all of the universe? Remember now, they've searched the entire universe heaven, earth, under the earth. Where is this worthy one who could rightfully take the scroll as mankind and earth's kinsman redeemer? Where has he been all along? Tell me. In the midst of the throne. And what is that clearly a reference to? His deity, yeah. It's clearly, where is he? He's in the midst of the throne. This is a reference to his deity. He is God. How is it that this worthy one appeared to John when John finally saw him there in the midst of the throne? He appeared as a standing slain lamb. And that is something which is really a bit strange, isn't it? Hadn't the elder just told John that the one who was worthy to take the scroll was the lion from the tribe of Judah? And yet when John turns to behold this one, what does he see? A lamb. It's like he's saying, oh, where's the lion? Oh, there he is. He's a lamb. (laughs) Beautiful. In these two joining verses, the Holy Spirit is demonstrating the beautiful, beautiful connection between the lion and the lamb. As the lion, you see, we see Christ in his second coming. Right? Right. That's how he comes, as a conquering lion in his second coming. As the lamb, that's how we saw him at his first coming. As a lion, we see him representing the government of God. As a lamb, we saw him demonstrating the grace of God. As a lion, he's going to come as a judge, and he's going to bring judgment. But as a lamb, he was judged. As the lion, he is the sovereign As the lamb, he was the suffering, sacrificial servant. These two symbols, then, the lion and the lamb, represent one person. And this fact was just something that the Jews could not comprehend. They couldn't fathom this. They liked the idea of their Messiah being a lion. They liked that idea. You know, one with power, one who would come to Israel and conquer all their enemies especially Rome, you know, get rid of those Romans. But they didn't see any glory in a lamb, especially in one who was seemingly so weak that he ended up by being nailed to a Roman cross. They couldn't see, or they really wouldn't see, they willingly wouldn't see the lamb as being the same person as the lion. So when John turned to see the lion, he saw instead a lamb. Now, how did he describe this lamb? He says, as a lamb as it had been slain. And the word slain in the Greek suggests a violent death. Did he die a violent death? Yes, he surely did. Now, let me ask you a question. This is a question you can ask your children or your grandchildren. Is there going to be anything man-made in heaven? You've heard this before. Yes, there is going to be something man-made in heaven. There will be the man-made nail prints of Calvary. And the man-made mark of the spear, which are going to be eternally upon the body of the Lamb of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, to serve eternally as a reminder of his supreme sacrifice, which redeemed us. Now, what was the Lamb, as it had been slain, doing? Was it lying there as John beheld him, gasping for air? Was he, was he dying? No, it says he was standing. You know, just as the fact that he was slain symbolically speaks of the Lord's crucifixion, the fact that he was standing, what do you think that symbolically speaks of? Exactly, his resurrection. So in the description of a standing, slain lamb, we find the death of Christ in the word slain, we find the gentleness of Christ in the word lamb because that word in the original Greek is used in the diminutive. So it's speaking of a little lamb, a little pet lamb. And that denotes Christ's gentleness and his willingness to lay down his life and to be led as a lamb submissively, silently to the slaughter. And we also have represented the resurrection of Christ in the word stood. Isn't it beautiful? What we have in those three words. And then John went on to tell us that this standing slain lamb, I like this picture here, had seven horns. And seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. Verse 6. Now seven, we know by this time, is the number of perfection. Horns. Throughout the scripture, we'll be talking a lot about horns in the chapters that follow. Horns speak of power and strength. What is it an animal uses to fight with? His horns speaks of power. Eyes. What do you think they symbolize? Insight and wisdom, knowledge so what we have here is symbolism which tells us that this one who is worthy to take the scroll, the one who is in the midst of the throne and in the midst of the four living creatures and in the midst of the four and twenty-four elders the one who is the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, the standing slain lamb is the one with perfect power seven horns and perfect wisdom Seven eyes. And perfect presence, the seven spirits in all the earth. Theologians call these three divine attributes omnipotence, omniscience, and omnipresence. And what does that speak of? Deity. So, again, please don't ever let anybody tell you that Jesus Christ is not divine that he is not God, he is God. Now, we might ask the question, how in the world, John, could you possibly have missed seeing this one who is in the midst of everything? How could you have missed it? Could it have been because John was so preoccupied with the sights of wonder and the sounds of worship and the jasper and the sardius light and the green emerald rainbow and the thunders and the lightnings and the sea of glass and the four living creatures and the four and twenty elders that he had completely missed seeing in the midst of all of these things the lamb do you think that it is possible for us to do the same thing Absolutely. You know, especially in this study of heaven, and in this study as we'll be coming into the judgments, you know, that'll be poured out on earth, we can get so preoccupied with the sights and with the sounds that we will completely, we might completely miss the lamb in the midst of all of it. And so I just want to caution us, myself included, because I can get so wrapped up in the symbolism and what does this mean and what does that mean, that we could miss the Lord Jesus Christ in our very midst. So let's be careful not to do this. It is all too possible, I know. I've been there to come to Bible studies and to come to preaching services and to perhaps hear the most wonderful messages from God's word and to sing the most glorious songs from hymn books and to recite the most beautiful prayers and yet to miss the Lord Jesus Christ in the midst of it all. So let's be on the alert not to do that. Well, in verse 7, and of course that I think is a very appropriate number, even though the verses are not divinely inspired, the dramatic moment arrives. The Lord Jesus Christ, who has been symbolized in so many meaningful ways in this fifth chapter, he comes forward and he takes the scroll out of the right hand of God the Father. Now this action is twofold. Because not only did Christ take the scroll, but God the Father allowed him to take the scroll, right? Thereby acknowledging before all of the universe that the standing slain lamb was in fact the world's kinsman redeemer. The actual fulfillment now of this event, you know, we're looking at this in a futuristic tense. The actual fulfillment of this has not yet occurred It will not occur until after the church is raptured from earth. But this event is coming. We're not reading about some pie-in-the-sky thing. This is going to happen one day. It is, everything God has ever said has come to pass. This will actually be an event one day that will happen. And it's going to be one of the greatest moments in all of eternity. And I told you before, I'm glad... I know I'm saved. I have no doubts about my salvation. I know that I'm going to be there to witness that moment when the one who was despised and rejected and crucified of men is going to step forward to take what what is rightfully his by way of creation, by way of Calvary, and by way of conquest. He's going to take the title deed to earth. He doesn't have it today. So earth is still under the wicked rulership of Satan and his ungodly forces. And so we need to go to the polls and just do our best to get men who perhaps some of them at least stand for some of the principles of God's word. But there is soon coming a moment in time when Christ will take that book and one by one he will unloose its seals as he begins to move in judgment to take back that which is rightfully his from the hands of the nasty evil usurper. Let's look at the song of redemption now. I love this part. And we have to really soak this up because after this we get into some judgment and we'll be there for a long time. So let's soak up all this good stuff while we can. Let's look at verses 8 to 10. It says, and when he had taken, well, I don't know, did I read verse 7? Let me read verse seven. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him that sat upon the throne. Verse eight, and when he had taken the book, the four beasts and four and twenty elders fell down before the lamb, having every one of them harps And golden vials full of odors, which are the prayers of saints. And they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation, and hast made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. Well, the response... To the taking of the scroll by the worthy slain lamb is that all of heaven breaks out in praise and worship and adoration of the lamb. The first outbreak of praise in heaven, which we read about, remember, back in chapter 4. The first outbreak was for God the Father and for his attributes of holiness and eternality, and for his work of creation. Now the outburst of praise, which comes from heaven in the verses I just read, is for God the Son, for the Lamb. And it is praise for him as Redeemer. Verses 9 and 10 contain what is called a new song celebrating the wonderful work of Christ's redemption the harps there some people say are we going to just play harps in heaven well I guess there are going to be harps because here it says harps but we're not going to just do that we're not going to just float around and play harps but they will be there they are symbols of uh, praise and worship they are instruments of praise and worship there aren't too many people that play harps down here are there I love the sound of a harp. Elena Allen, when she comes, I just love a harp. But there are very few people who know how to play one. I guess we're all going to learn when we get to heaven. Then there are golden vials full of odors. Now, that basically means bowls full of incense. Now, these aren't bad odors. These are good odors, bowls of incense. And they are interpreted for us. What are they? They are the prayers of the saints. That's what they represent. These bowls full of beautiful smells represent the accumulation of the prayers of God's people down through the ages. As they have called upon God in their prayers to demonstrate his righteousness, righteousness and to vindicate himself by moving in judgment and showing the ungodly world who he is and who his son is do you ever pray like that god vindicate yourself. Show this world who you are. Show this world who your son is. This is the accumulation of all those prayers. These are the prayers of the saints who have longed for God's will to be done on earth as it has been decreed so long ago in heaven. It is the accumulation of all those who, like John himself, have said, even so, come, Lord Jesus. I hope you pray that frequently. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. As you pray that, that is going up as a sweet-smelling savor to God, and it is being accumulated in these golden vials. One day, all these prayers are going to be answered. They're not being prayed in vain. So the weeping ends, and the singing begins. They're singing a new song. The representatives of God's creation, those four living creatures, you know, with the different faces, they represent God's creation. They join their voices with the four and twenty elders in a new song. And this new song is the song of redemption. Finally, finally, the earth is going to be redeemed for the first time since the fall. This is the first time, by the way, in all of the word of God that angels and men are singing together. Mark that down in your margin if you want to. First time men and angels are singing together. In chapter 4 of Revelation, which was before Christ took the scroll, the four living angelic creatures give their praises to God separately, and their praises are said S-A-I-D. They are spoken. They are not sung. If you go back and look at verse 4, before Christ took the scroll, those praises are said. They are not sung. In fact, one of you mentioned this to me a couple weeks ago, and you were right. I don't remember who it was. Angels are never seen singing in all of the Bible except at the time of creation. In Job, you know, Job is the oldest book of the Bible. Even though it's not the first one, it was written even before the books of Moses. In Job chapter 38, verse 7, the oldest book of the Bible, we are told that the morning stars, and that's a reference to angels, sang together. And elsewhere in that verse, it talks about the sons of God. That's also another reference to the angels. This was at the time of creation. You read the rest of that verse, it's talking about when God created everything, the angels were singing together. So that is the old song, all right? That is the old song. It was the song of the creation of the universe and of earth in particular. They sang because God was the creator. But they really, the angels then, didn't know anything about God's mercy, God's grace, God's love. They didn't know. So they were just singing then about God's creation. Well, shortly after God created the universe, and earth in particular, and man in specific, what happened? Man fell. And angels are never, ever heard again singing in all of the Scripture. Every angel in the Bible, you can go through it and look it up, every time you hear from an angel in the Bible, he is speaking something, he is saying something, or he is commanding something, you know, for God. He's a messenger. He's making a command through God. But he's never singing. He never sings until we get to Revelation chapter 5 and we hear the new song, which is sung not only by the representatives of the church, the 24 elders, but it's sung by angelic living creatures, those four living creatures as well. Now, why, we might ask, are they at long last singing again? Why are they singing? Well, it is because the Lord Jesus Christ, the last Adam, has taken the title of the to earth in his hands and finally earth is going to be redeemed back to genesis back to the way it was at the beginning in an unfallen state now the song sung by the four living creatures and the four and twenty elders is a worship hymn this is a worship hymn to jesus worship means to ascribe worth and the lord alone is worthy Sadly, you know, if you think about this song that they sang, look at it in verse 9 while I'm talking. This song would not be sung in many of our churches today. Sad, tragic, horrible. This song would not be sung in many of our churches because many of our modern denominational hymn books have removed all songs which speak about the blood of Christ. Do you know that? They've taken the blood out. Some people feel it's just too embarrassing to speak about the the blood, to sing about blood. That's too uncivilized. Well, perhaps God won't embarrass those people in heaven. Perhaps they won't have to sing about the blood in heaven because perhaps they will not be there in heaven. But for the rest of us who unashamedly sing about the cross and about the blood of Christ, we are merely down here getting into practice for what we're going to sing about when we get to heaven and when we worship Christ by singing, Thou art worthy for thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood. Out of every kindred, now that's a, that's a reference to common ancestry, every kindred, every tongue, that's a reference to a common language, every people, that's a reference to a common race, and every nation, that's a reference to a common rule or government. Now it's obvious then that these 24 elders represent more than just, um, that there are more than just 24 Elder singing, I should say, because we know that there are far more than just 24 language groups, for example, on earth, right? So they represent more than just 24. So found in this song is God's promise that he does have his elect saints hidden away in every tribe, in every people, in every language group, and in every nation on the earth. He loves the whole world. Now, three times in the book of Revelation, I'm almost done, people are said to be made kings and priests. Three times, Revelation 1, 6, Revelation 5, 10, right here, and Revelation 20, verse 6. Just like Melchizedek back in Genesis 15, Kings and priests. I don't know if I'm... Am I doing that? I keep knocking it off or something. The temple veil was torn when the Lord Jesus died. And the way to God, of course, now is open to the believers. So the church body of Christ is a priesthood of believers. We are a royal priesthood. Just not one priest can go into the the Holy of Holies. All of us as a royal priesthood could go right into God's throne room. Now this song is not only a hymn of worship, it's prophetic. It's a prophetic song because it will be during the 1,000-year kingdom that we shall reign. You see that at the end of verse um, um, 10? Yeah, it's prophetic. It says, we shall reign on the earth. When Christ reigns as king of kings, we are going to be the kings. We're going to be the little K kings. He's the king. We're the kings. All right, quickly, the sevenfold praise in verses 11 to 14. It says, And I beheld and I heard the voice of many angels round about the throne and the beasts and the elders, and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing and every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them heard I saying blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne see that's to God and unto the lamb forever and ever so this is praise to God and and Christ and the four beasts said amen And the four and twenty elders fell down and worshipped him that liveth forever and ever. You see, it wasn't enough for the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders to be alone worshipping the slain lamb, the worthy lamb. The tremendous host of heaven wanted to join in with them. So the term ten thousand times ten thousand and thousands of thousands, that's a term that John uses to signify that, that The angels from all the four corners of the universe were just innumerable. They were too many to count. This numberless host of mighty angels assembled together before the throne of God to unite with the redeemed and resurrected church saints and with those four living creatures to praise the worthy lamb. In a loud voice, they say, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive. Notice how many things. Power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. How many? Seven, isn't that appropriate? Sevenfold praise to the one who is perfect in every single aspect. Although he was born in weakness, the weakness of human flesh, and although he died in seeming weakness, yet he is the recipient of all power. Although he became the poorest of men, yet he owns all of the riches in heaven and in earth. Although men laughed at him and mocked him and thought that he was a fool, yet he is the very wisdom of God. Although he shared in the sinless. Um, weakness of all men in his humanity in that he hungered and he thirsted and he grew weary yet he possesses all strength although he was ridiculed for his kingship on earth and he was mocked as they put on him a purple robe and gave him a thorny crown for his head yet he will receive all honor and all glory even from his mockers although he became a curse for us as he hung on a cross so that you and I don't ever have to come under the curse of sin yet he receives all blessing he became a curse but he's going to receive all blessing and this this little sevenfold praise works the other way too you know it works from our perspective because he alone is worthy of all power and all of our riches and all of our wisdom and strength. And he deserves all of our honor and glory and blessing, doesn't he? Well, this heavenly worship service climaxed with every other creature in all of the universe, those in heaven, those on earth, those under the earth, earth, those in the sea, and anybody else that John might have missed All of them praising both the Lamb of God and the one who was seated on the throne, God himself. After all, when Christ, the Redeemer, took that title deed of earth from the hand of God, the creator, what did this mean? This meant that all creation, you know, inanimate creation, like trees and flowers and everything, rocks, (laughs) and animal creation and all human creation would be redeemed except of course for fallen man unsaved man and fallen angels but other than them all creation would be redeemed the groaning and the travailing in pain which creation has suffered ever since Satan usurped this earth away from Adam due of course to Adam's own sin will come to an end so creation wants to join in on the praise do you blame them I mean, a tree gets mighty tired of um, having to lose all its leaves every fall. (laughs) It gets tired of having to die, too. And so they want to join in on all of the praise, and that's exactly what they do. So all creation joins in in praising the kinsman-redeemer and also the Father for having sent his only begotten Son to earth so that they could be redeemed. Now, you know, one day... Someday, as we have just learned, every creature of God, including all of those who have rejected rejected him and who have died lost, all of them will acknowledge that Jesus Christ is worthy of blessing and honor and glory and power. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess him. And when... I think I'm out again. This says when all when all creation is praising him, so this will be even unredeemed men and fallen angels. When this happens, we are told that the four living creatures who do represent all of God's creation, remember, what do they say? They say, Amen. So be it. And I wonder if that is your response today as we read about all of this praise and all of this worship of the standing slain lamb. You know, the gentle, crucified, resurrected, ascended, and glorified Lord Jesus Christ. Does your heart, when you hear all of this, does your heart just immediately respond to a lesson like this with the word, Amen? You know, so be it. Does your heart say... Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Let's get this show on the road. Take that title deed and get down here and avenge yourself and take what is rightfully yours. I hope that's what your heart says. Because if it does, then there is little, very little doubt that you will be there when he does step forward and take that significant scroll from his father's right hand. And do you wonder what you're going to do when you behold that scene? What are you going to do? Well, I imagine we're going to be doing exactly what they did. And they fall down on their faces and they worship him that liveth forever and ever. So we don't need to speculate about what we'll be doing. We'll be falling down on our faces before the slain standing lamb and worshiping him that live forever and ever.